when our social identities are so connected to our partisanship, it's really, really hard, you know, to overcome the sort of knee-jerk partisanship that is occurring in the country. Employing our partisanship is so cost-free. You know, we don't have to be accurate about things when we're answering public opinion polls or, you know, whatever. Um, we can just cheerlead. You know, we can be on our team's side. But how about this? What if the costs of following your partisanship end up increasing? There's actually something going on in the world where following one's partisanship is getting more costly. And that is if following your partisanship might make you sick or might cause you to die. Welcome to another episode of COVID Conversations. My name is Jonathan Weiler. I'm a teaching professor in the Curriculum and Global Studies at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. My name is Matt Andrews. I am a professor in the Department of History here at UNC Chapel Hill. We are so pleased to be joined today by Mark Hetherington from the UNC Department of Political Science. Uh, Mark is the Raymond Dawson Professor of Political Science here at UNC. And Mark is an expert on polarization in American politics. His two most recent books are Prius or Pickup, How the Answers to Four Simple Questions Explain America's Great Divide, and Authoritarianism and Polarization in American Politics. And full disclosure, both of these books were co-authored by my co-host, Jonathan Weiler. This is our second conversation with him. We spoke to him back in April when he and colleagues had begun a panel survey of 2,400 people to find out how they were responding to efforts to combat the coronavirus pandemic. And we heard from him today about their ongoing research, which continues to yield really fascinating findings. Jonathan, I mean, I, I, I got to be honest, I, I find these two issues of COVID and American politics, when you combine them, to be absolutely suffocating at times. You know, so when, I, when I'm reading about these things and about the politicization of the pandemic, I just need to shut down sometimes. But I found it so both helpful and a little bit, uh, there's a little bit of optimism in what, in what Mark was saying today, but he so skillfully laid out the issues uh, Not to, to the point you made a minute ago, when Mark first spoke to us in April, m Americans across the board were pretty worried about coronavirus. And so they were quite similar, whether they were Democrat or Republican and supporting mask wearing and other measures being taken. But what has reasserted itself in the subsequent months is just the imperviousness of polarization this divide to even the most extraordinary new realities, including the fact that we now have 200,000 people having died of COVID in the last six months. So it, it, it's striking to hear that. Um, and at the same time, I think Mark was, I don't want to say optimistic because he was not optimistic, but he provided us with some interesting fodder for thinking about what might break the impasse eventually. And by far, I thought the most interesting part of our conversation was hearing what Mark is doing with this information and how he's taking this information and it's really using that information to make a difference. And the specific type of difference, I won't mention right now, we'll let people hear about it in the podcast.
Uh, Mark, uh, welcome back to our show. Oh, thanks for having me on again. Well, last time we had such a great conversation about the links between COVID and political polarization. We wanted to bring you back and see what uh, has stayed the same, what has has changed. So let's jump right in and talk about this poll that you and other political scientists here at UNC have put into the field and received responses to. It, it, it's a poll about attitudes about government policies enacted in response to the COVID pandemic. Can you just start us off today by talking generally about this poll? Yeah, I think that's a really useful place to start. So the way that uh, you do survey research, especially in this day and age, is you hire a survey firm uh, and you provide a questionnaire to them that you've uh, you know put together yourself. And you know they provide a, a link to a cross-section of Americans that meet different uh, population benchmarks. Uh, you know, uh, so our samples, you know, are just like the population of the United States in terms of gender and income and race and education and all of those different types of things. And what we've done is we've gone into the field three times now. Uh, first time in the middle of April, right when things were you know really seeming out of control. Uh, then in June, a couple of months after that, and we're uh, just getting our third wave of data back right now here in mid-September. And you know the way that we've set up our sample is, I think, kind of unique and interesting. We ask 2,400 people our survey questions uh, in each of those things. However, in each of the surveys, about half of the people took the survey before, uh, in addition to the one that they're taking at present. And what this creates is what's called a panel design, where we can actually trace specific people's opinions and attitudes and behaviors about various things uh, over the course of time. We don't have to guess about you know whose people, who, which people's opinions and behaviors are changing. What we can do is actually see you know specific people's opinions and behaviors uh, changing. Uh, and what this allows us to do is to you know kind of develop. Uh, really strong uh, uh, theories and tests about causation. What specifically is causing people to change their opinions and behaviors over time? It's been the most exciting and interesting thing I've ever been involved with um, in the study of American politics. And so when you've put that poll into the field the first time, can you talk mm -hmm. about what, the, what findings you had or which conclusions you, you drew? Well, we had a, a number of different outcomes, but, you know, Matt, the thing that was, I think, most surprising to us was the fact that there was kind of a minimum of polarization. And just remember, you know, what it was like back in April. Um, I don't know about you, but like I was having a hard time, you know, going to the gas station and touching the gas pumps. Um, you know, it just felt like, you know, anything uh, could give you uh, COVID at that point because we just didn't know. Um, and with that kind of fear gripping the country, and also, um, both political parties' leaders were providing pretty similar signals about the fact that it was important to close businesses, important for people to stay at home. And what we found was that there was almost no polarization, no difference in opinions between Republicans and Democrats. And it was kind of shocking. Now, Democrats were slightly more supportive of things like staying home and closing businesses and doing those things than Republicans. But even Republicans were overwhelmingly supportive. So that was, you know, one of the especially surprising things from that, uh, from that first, um, uh, that first survey. So, and Mark, to follow up on that, things have changed. 
since that first survey. So can you talk a little bit about what has changed in your data in panel two and panel yeah. three? Have they ever? Oh my yeah. gosh. Um, and it's exactly you know what we've been seeing in terms of the reporting on television uh, and so forth. And that is that the opinions of Democrats about you know how to deal with the pandemic have mostly stayed pretty constant uh, over time. You know, of course, everybody's getting a little bit tired of um, you know dealing with uh, with COVID. So even Democrats are slightly less supportive of some of the measures that were put in place to deal with COVID. Uh, but uh, Republicans are, you know, as they say in 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 uh, both life and in uh, my profession, they're following the leader. Um, uh, the leadership that they're getting uh, in terms of their opinions from the Republicans in government are saying, you know, this is overblown. Uh, this is uh, uh, not something that we need to overreact to and so forth. And so what we see is a huge deterioration in support among Republicans for, you know, mask wearing mandates, uh, uh business closures, uh, all, just a whole range of different things. So we've gone from not being polarized to being polarized in a way that, you know, we are about pretty much everything um, in American life. Mark, can you, could, could you give us maybe one example of just a numerical gap sure. between Republicans and Democrats on mask wearing or some other key issue related to dealing with the pandemic. Yeah. So just to give one example of that at the in our first wave of the of the data, uh, the Republicans and Democrats were about oh, 10 percentage points apart as related to uh, uh, mask wearing mandates with both sides being overwhelmingly uh, supportive. That gap is now about 50 points. Um, mm. Uh, another uh, thing that we asked people about was trade-offs. Do you think it's more important to deal uh, with uh, helping the economy or dealing with the health crisis? You know, just a simple question uh, like that. Uh, back in April, uh, the country was united behind the fact that the key thing was for us dealing with the health crisis, both Republicans and Democrats, no more than five or 10 percentage points apart on saying the health crisis was the thing we had to deal with now. And again, we're about 40 or 50 percentage points apart on that uh, right now, too. So again, just like, and you know, this, this is the thing that is so shocking to me, is how in the world, you know, can we be polarized on a pandemic um, no other country in the world seems to be, um, but our country is exceptional um, in, in this particular regard. <laughs> to use a loaded term. Yes, yeah. to say the least. Yeah. Mark, and, and just to, uh, I'll make a statement and you can either confirm or disconfirm. These gaps you're describing, just for some context, 40 to 50 points, until a few years ago, we saw gaps like this on almost no public opinion questions between Democrats and Republicans. And now these have become the norm. So just just to be clear about how extraordinary it's not just that they're far apart, it's that they're 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 apart to an extent that we've rarely seen until recently in politics. Yeah, that's right. You know, and, you know, of course, we didn't have a pandemic uh, back in the 1980s. So it's hard to compare in that sense. But in general, um, 
Republicans and Democrats are simply seeing even objective reality in ways that are completely different from each other uh, uh, and in ways that are a real departure from how they were before. So just an example, uh, back in 1988, when George H.W. Bush was running against Michael Dukakis for the presidency, people were asked, you know, over the past year, did the economy get better or worse or stayed the same over the past year? And there's an answer to that question that's right, of course. Mm -hmm. And Democrats and Republicans were about 20 points different um, on that. So, you know, of course, Republicans want to see it as better when their guys are in office and, you know, Democrats want to see it as worse. But if you fast forward to today, those differences are about 50 percentage points. Um, so in other words, we're twice as motivated to reason with bias um, in this day and age than we were, you know, back when uh, the three of us were in college. Well, then, Mark, could I ask you to interrogate one of the the things you said just a minute ago, you were saying that Republicans, I mean, it, those are the numbers that have changed in this in this poll. And you said that, and I think you were painting in broad strokes here, but Republicans follow the, the leader. Um, yep. What you just pointed out there suggests to me that there's been, there has been sort of complicated, complex change over time. Mm -hmm. But you also seem to be saying that if Donald Trump would just say, this is serious, everyone should wear masks, then the difference would not, would not be there. I, I guess I asked you two questions. Could you, could, could you comment mm -hmm. on that? Well, the last of them is, uh, yes, I think that if uh, Republican office holders provided uh, the leadership on the issue that masks are important, social distancing is important, all of these you know, types of things are important, uh, those differences in partisanship in terms of those attitudes, they wouldn't go away completely, right? Because, you know, Republicans are more likely to live in less densely populated areas and the virus is objectively speaking, you know, not that, uh, uh, not as dangerous there because, you know, the gatherings are, are not as tight together. There are no subways there. Uh, you know, there's just natural distancing. So yes, um, you know, everything that we know about public opinion tells us that on something that people are unfamiliar with, like a pandemic, the cues that political party leaders provide are going to be largely determinative of how people behave. And we see evidence of it. You know, at the beginning of the pandemic, when both sides were providing basically the same messages, the uh, public was following, you know, there, there was consensus. Um, when polarization occurs, it almost always happens um, because of uh, parties taking opposite positions on things. And then the second part of it, Matt, is that the tendency for people to follow our leaders or their leaders has increased over time as partisanship, our party identities have become a more important part of our social identities. And that's happened because politics has just become so contentious and uh, Republicans and Democrats have, you know, uh, moved so far apart in so many different ways. And as a result of that, um, it's shaping all sorts of opinions and behaviors in a way that it just simply didn't do in the same way 30 or 40 years ago. So, Mark, a, a quick follow up. Is there any reason to believe that the downplaying of the pandemic coming from the White House, that this is and I'm just thinking about this in sort of, you know, naked political terms here, that this is a shrewd political move from the president? Well, it depends on, you know, how you measure shrewd, um, you know. I mean, is it going to help? Is it going to help him win the election? 
Yeah, you know, I was going to say um, it's almost certainly led to more deaths um, and more spread of the virus and, you know, a slower reopening of the economy uh, than it would have uh, otherwise. Um, but, you know, here's the thing, Matt, that's so interesting about what we've been finding, and that is, at least among Republicans, even with moving from 100,000 deaths in June, you know, which is about what we had when we were in the field last time, to now 200,000 deaths in September, and this is, you know, of course, where we're gathering data now. I've looked at the preliminary data. Republicans' views of President Trump's performance on COVID has not changed a bit, not at all. It is zero, exactly the same rating. And, you know, uh, independence, you know, his uh, ratings on that have deteriorated. Uh, and with Democrats, of course, uh, deteriorated to near zero um, at this point. Um, but the thing that is just so interesting is how divorced from the reality of things his core constituency is. Um, I, I honestly have never seen anything like it in my 25 years studying public opinion. So, Mark, one of the things that you and your co-researchers have used this data for is to create a series of public service ads about COVID. And we would love to hear about the construction of those ads and what kind of impact you can say they've had. Well, Jonathan, I'm glad you asked about that because this has to be the most exciting thing that I've ever actually been involved with as a professional. I mean, of course, the birth of my kids, way more so. <laughs> um, but um, uh, and, and Mark, obviously, other than working, I was going to say, Mark, that, that, should, that, that should go. <laughs> yeah. That should go without saying. Okay, it's kind of a toss-up, um, you know, right there. Um, maybe the Capitals winning the Stanley Cup also very exciting. Um, but other than those things. Um, because, you know, let's face it, you know, as social scientists, it's very rare for us to be able to have an impact on the world, um, you know, at least a direct impact. You know, we teach and, you know, we try to inspire and we try to, you know, cause our students, um, you know, to, to uh, want to change the world. But as social scientists, we're unlikely to be able to do that ourselves. Um, so COVID actually provided a very unique opportunity. So we're gathering these data and we're learning about the people who are, say, wearing masks and the people who aren't. They're telling us, you know, in answers to survey questions, whether we're doing it. Now, what this gives us the opportunity to do is to look at what are the attitudes that people who aren't wearing masks have. And as a result, um, we can, you know, maybe craft some ideas for messaging that might be persuasive uh, to them. Uh, and we know exactly, you know, what groups they like, you know, what groups they don't like. Um, and we got together through a, a mutual friend at WRAL uh, down in Raleigh to be able to craft along with their creative team using our data and, you know, some of the ideas that we were coming up with combined with their creative team to put together two PSAs. I'll tell you about one of them. Um, uh, because I think it's uh, the most interesting. Um, so what we learned was people who are not complying love the military. And not, it's not surprising, you know, because most people who are conservative like the military and most people who weren't complying were conservative. So uh, we found uh, a, 
uh, retired general, uh, uh, General Shelton, who used to be the chair of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, who we put together a script for uh, about, you know, the dangers of COVID and that we're in the fight of our lives and, you know, that it was patriotic in a sense to wear a mask. And then we also did a, uh, a cartoon-based ad that, you know, sort of explained the mechanics of how COVID can spread. So then the interesting thing is, and so they ran, they ran for three weeks. The general manager at uh, WRA was enthusiastic about this whole process. Creative team did a great job. Uh, and then, you know, what we wanted to know is, did it work? So we hired a survey firm to uh, put a survey into the field in the Raleigh DMA, you know, the area that could potentially see uh, those ads. And, you know, some people said that they saw the ads. Some people said, I might have seen the ads. Um, and some people said, I've never seen that ad. Um, and what we found was among people who said that they saw the ads, their attitudes about masks were about 10 percentage points more favorable than people who either weren't sure or uh, said that they hadn't seen uh, the masks at all. So that was a pretty good indication that, you know, what we had done, you know, had actually made a difference, that it had worked. And, um, you know, the folks at WRAL shared their PSAs with the North Carolina Broadcasters Association. They can run all over the state um, at this point. Uh, I suspect uh, that they have. But as social scientists, not only, you know, were we, you know, happy with that, we also, in our third wave of our survey, uh, actually showed people the PSA. So we were sure, you know, that they saw them um, uh, versus uh, if we didn't show either of those ads. And what we're finding among people who have a moderate level of belief in science, they, they don't have a lot of confidence in science, but they, uh, they have some. Uh, but it, among people who have a lot of you know, belief in science, they're probably already wearing masks anyway. But about half of the people only have some confidence in science. And what we're finding you know, for them is those ads are having about, again, a 10 percentage point impact on their attitudes about the importance of masks, whether masks stop the spread, uh, and whether uh, they stop you from contracting the virus itself. It's been awesome. Wow. Uh, for the record, I'm, I'm on the fence about science. Well, you're exactly who we're targeting here, Matt. Um, I'm going to have to show you these <laughs> okay. uh, ads. Uh, you know, maybe... Well, I, I, I don't want to get too, too into the weeds about this, but if you're trying to target a particular, and, and maybe this isn't your part of this endeavor, but if you're trying to target this particular audience, a more conservative, Republican-leaning, pro-military audience, do you pick particular... So, for example, the only TV I watch is NBA basketball these days, and I have not seen these these ads. I'm guessing, what shows do you show this, do you um, broadcast this to? Well, it's a great question. Those were not our decisions, but, you know, the, but the, uh, the folks at WRAL had a sense of who we were talking about here. Um, the news, uh, the local news, both at uh, 6 and 11, was the main place. But, you know, it was also on, you know, all of the daytime shows, um, you know, during the course of the day. They, they showed it uh, basically throughout the day, more often on the news, but it was like on Wheel of Fortune and, you know, all of those uh, types of uh, programs as well. I'm thinking Matlock for for some reason. That's what's coming to coming. You know, to mind. I don't. Re you know, we probably should put a dummy variable in for Matlock. <laughs> um, you know, to see whether that would make a, a, a an especially big difference. But you know, it's funny, Matt. We actually have the data um, about what shows that people watch. We could we could actually dig that out.
And Mark, do you have any idea? You just ask people whether they've seen the ad or not, Mm -hmm. not how many times they've seen the ad. So I'm just wondering if repetition would have any added benefit. You know, that's also something we asked about. How often uh, did you see the ad? Uh, We haven't dug uh, any more deeply into the data um, to get a sense about it. Um, but it is interesting, you know, I've talked with people and, and it's mostly people who are older, you know, as you know, I think Matt was sort of nodding toward because, you know, people who are older watch, you know, regular TV a whole lot more than people who are younger. And, you know, I've just been, you know, chatting about this with, you know, people here and there and everywhere. And, and their reaction is, I've seen that ad. I've seen that ad a million times. <laughs> <laughs> so they must be tuned into w, WRAL, NBC and, and, their, uh, and their slate of shows. You're listening to COVID Conversations, and we're speaking today with Mark Hetherington, the Raymond Dawson Professor of Political Science at UNC Chapel Hill. So, Mark, another I think, very interesting piece of research related to this larger panel you've done has to do with mask wearing and race. So can you tell us a little bit about about that part of the the study. Yeah, I think this might be the neatest thing that we did, even more so than the WRAL piece. So, you know, I was connected among a bunch of uh, scholars at UNC to the Department of Health and Human Services at the very beginning of the pandemic. And uh, we were providing some ideas to HHS about you know, messaging and so forth based on, again, the survey data that we were collecting and such. Um, and one of the things that came up, because remember at the beginning, you know, we didn't know whether masks were a good idea, a bad idea, uh, or whatever. And one of the things that uh, one of the officials at HHS raised was the idea that uh, masks may actually increase health disparities because African Americans, in particular, were concerned about uh, wearing masks. You know, uh, you know whether uh, that would cause people who were not African American uh, to view them with more suspicion uh, than they might otherwise uh, view uh, African Americans with. And of course, there's a long running, uh, you know, set of stereotypes that. Uh, especially Americans seem to have about criminality and African-Americans. And, you know, let's think about it. I mean, when you think about uh, mask wearing, it's usually done by criminals. You know, so the combination of those two things, you know, there was some real concern about um, the degree to which that uh, the African-American community was being asked to make a, a decision that nobody else was having to make. You know, uh, does wearing a mask actually uh, endanger me more than COVID does, um, you know, in, in that respect. And so we were really concerned about that and wanted to know, well, is it true? So we put together an experiment where we uh, took an African-American model um, and uh, outfitted him in uh, three different types of masks and with no mask. And we took a picture, four different pictures, well, actually we took about 4 million different pictures of him in the Food Lion parking lot. Um, 
and, you know, came up with, you know, four pictures that we were happy with. One with him with no mask, one with a surgical mask, one with a cloth mask, and then finally one with a bandana uh, type mask. And then in our next survey, we provided people chosen at random a story about, you know, meeting this uh, African-American male who is probably in his late 20s. Uh, in the parking lot and talking uh, or, or just seeing him. And the idea then after this vignette, we asked people how uh, threatening they saw the person, how uh, comfortable they would might be talking with him, uh, how trustworthy uh, they found him. And what we found was that there was a, you know, a statistically significant difference, you know, somewhere between eight and 12 percentage points, depending upon the question of uh, people's assessments uh, of that same person, um, depending upon which mask they got, all right? And what we found was that bandana masks and cloth masks, regular just sort of cloth masks, increased the ratings of threateningness and untrustworthiness and lack of comfort, whereas surgical masks did not. Um, so uh, it, it made no difference between, you know, the perceptions that the people had of that person, whether he was wearing a surgical mask or no mask at all. So what this told us was the best way to keep African-American males, at least, because that was the, uh, the, the model in our, uh, in, our, uh, in our experiment, the best way to keep people safe and from harassment or worse is uh, for uh, the, that group to be uh, provided with at least, you know, a lot of access to surgical masks because, you know, that uh, is going to blunt, you know, seems to disconnect these criminal uh, stereotypes, these mask-wearing stereotypes. And think about it, it makes sense, you know, whenever we watch a movie and there's a bank robber, uh, that person's not wearing a surgical mask. Um, you know, so uh, this was pretty exciting. You know, we were able to share, you know, these results with um, uh, Secretary Cohen at, at HHS and, you know, tried to get them into, you know, hands pretty widely. Uh, 538.com uh, provided us with um, uh, a great platform, uh, national platform to share this. Uh, uh, our uh, you know, our preprint of the paper was, you know, uh, shared and downloaded thousands of times. Um, it was, uh, it was pretty awesome again. I, I'm not surprised to hear that that was the, the result. I'm, I'm wondering, do you do the same test using a, a white model? Yeah, uh, it's a great question, Matt. Um, and we did. And what we found was uh, the surgical, all of the masks on the uh, white model made the person actually seem more trustworthy and less threatening and so forth. Um, so there were these massive uh, differences in how people perceive the, uh, the, white the white model versus the African-American model, depending upon masks. Even though every image I have of someone wearing a bandana to rob a bank is a white guy out in the Old West, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's Butch exactly. Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. I, I'm not surprised to hear this. I'm, I'm, I'm disheartened to hear it. And it's such an interesting study because it combines these two pandemics that we've been talking about. All, exactly. All, all and that's something that I, I should add to, you know, our study started out, you know, very much focusing on COVID alone. But of course, you know, in the middle of it, you know, George Floyd's uh, killing took place and, you know, the uh, issues involving Breonna Taylor now. And, you know, we've really also started to add a, a, a racial attitudes, racial politics component to the survey uh, as well. We haven't learned quite as much because, um, you know, this is, you know, 
uh, stuff that we started to add later on. Um, but the intersection of COVID and uh, the racial unrest in the United States, I think, is, a, is, is probably the most important thing to be studying right now. Mark, I think we'd like to start looking ahead a little bit, but I, I, I want to keep talking about the, the, the findings of your poll at the same time. I'm listening to you speak and hearing about the data of the divisiveness. It, I, I'm getting the same feeling that I get every time I get on Twitter, which I, just sort of this feeling of hopelessness. And, and, and I guess I, I mean that in a, in a number of ways, but, but one of the ways is just the, the extreme partisanship out there, how divided everyone seems, how everyone seems to see, see the world in, a, in a, either this way or that way. It, is there any information coming from your poll that suggests the, a way out of the partisanship or, 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 or perhaps suggests that we're, we're not as divided um, as we might first seem to be? Well, that's a, a great question. And um, let me just preface, preface the answer by saying, you know, when our social identities are so connected to our partisanship, it's really, really hard, you know, to overcome the sort of knee-jerk partisanship that is occurring in, in the country. And, you know, part of the reason for that is because partisanship, you know, employing our partisanship is so cost-free. You know, what is the cost, you know, of saying, oh, everything's fine, um, you know, or everything's terrible. You know, it's, it's cost-free. You know, we don't have to be accurate about things when we're answering public opinion polls or, you know, whatever. Um, we can just cheerlead. You know, we can be on our team's side. But how about this? What if the costs of following your partisanship end up increasing, you know, and there's actually something going on in the world where following one's partisanship is getting more costly. And that is if following your partisanship might make you sick or might cause you to die, um, for instance. That's a pretty big increase um, in uh, the costs associated with following your partisanship. So what we found in our you know, panel design, and this is, again, really important because we can track you know, the opinions of the same people over time. What we find is that among Republicans, who are uh, not afraid of getting sick or have gotten less afraid of getting sick over time, that they are uh, the specific Republicans who are moving away from the consensus on mask wearing and you know closing of businesses and restaurants and things like that. It's those. It's specifically those people. But and and that's most Republicans. Okay. But there's a, a significant chunk of Republicans who are, in fact, concerned about becoming seriously ill. And among those people, or who have gotten more so uh, over time, and among that group of people, what we're seeing is they look like Democrats, actually, um, when it comes to uh, you know, supporting mask wearing or mask wearing themselves or any number of other uh, sort of mitigation techniques. So it's funny, uh, what we talk about is kind of a healthy dose of fear um, might be something that can blunt the impact of partisanship. And you know, we have you know, sort of the data to prove it that that happens. And I think that this could have political implications. One thing that we find in our collection is that older people, not surprisingly, are more concerned about get, becoming seriously ill than younger people are, right? I mean, because, you know, the health outcomes for older people are much worse. That's just reality. But think about what older people also are. Well, they also tend to be Republican. Um, so to the extent that there is a significant chunk of older people 
in places like Florida, which is an older state, people like Pennsylvania, people like uh, Michigan, uh, people like Wisconsin. These are all places with high percentages of older folks. Um, if they're more concerned about getting sick, the, the costs of following their, say, Republican partisanship is going to be much higher. So, you know, we see in some surveys Trump leaking some support, in, uh, especially among older people in, uh, in Florida and maybe some of these other swing states. I suspect that's why. You know, for them, you know, just going along with things carries quite a cost. They might be dead. Um, many of them, you know, probably have friends uh, or who have become at least seriously ill, uh, if not have died. So, you know, it's weird, you know, fear has the, the strange uh, ability to oddly bring us together. And I guess the $64,000 question is, is that really going to make a difference come November? Well, Matt, you know, we don't know. But here's what I, you know, uh, usually answer to um, uh, that, that notion. And, and it's this, you know, we're so and have been for the last 20 years so evenly divided that even small marginal changes can have an outsized impact on winners and losers. You know, I mean, you think about these elections, you know, uh, in terms of the Electoral College and popular vote in 2000, it was basically a tie. Um, uh, 2004, the map looked almost exactly the same, almost an Electoral College tie. And we've had, you know, these series of elections decided by, you know, basically three percentage points or fewer, with the exception of 2008. Um, and under those circumstances, anything can matter. Um, anything can. And it doesn't even have to be, it doesn't have to have a big impact for it to have a decisive impact. So, Mark, just, just thinking ahead... Perhaps beyond November, although it's hard to think beyond November. Um, we're, we're recording this less than six weeks from Election Day. But trying to think ahead beyond November, based on what you've told us about the PSA that you did and this sort of component of fear and the cost of partisanship, what about this work sort of allows you to perhaps envision a different future in terms of how divided we are or aren't? None of what I've done causes me to be especially optimistic. And, you know, obviously Jonathan and I have known each other for over 20 years now. And I think one of the things that, you know, Jonathan would probably convey about me is I'm a pretty optimistic and hopeful guy. Um, you know, it's not my disposition to think, you know, the sky is falling. But, you know, one of the things that, you know, we led off a, an, an article, Jonathan wrote the first paragraph of this uh, article uh, for a publication in France this uh, last month, uh, was about how um, Republicans and Democrats are, you know, seeing the COVID world and whether the, the uh, number of deaths is acceptable um, in the United States. Uh, you know, and of course, now we're at that point, we're about a, at 170,000, which, you know, strikes me and probably pretty much anybody as unacceptable, um, given the lack of, you know, similar numbers in, in other parts of the world. And, you know, how do you overcome the fact that, you know, Republicans, uh, a majority of Republicans find those losses acceptable? Um, now, you know, I think we're in a really bad place when fear is one of the only things that gives us hope 
Um, uh, you know, and you know the worse yet is that the percentage of Republicans who are seriously concerned about becoming ill is actually dropping um, as as time goes by. You know, I thought when the when the um, virus. Uh, got into the red states and started to have, uh, you know, terrible health outcomes there, not just in places like in New York and Boston and, and major eastern cities. I thought we would see, you know, a huge increase in concern among uh, Republicans because they would be living closer to people uh, who were either getting very sick or dying. But again, you know, our attitudes, our predispositions seem to be overwhelming reality right now. Um, and, uh, you know, under those circumstances, I, I don't know what you can do um, to overcome that. Mark, I'm just thinking as, as you're describing this arc and also thinking back to our earlier conversation in April when that first wave of results, as you suggested, as you said, looked very different than the picture we're seeing now, that this has turned out to be an extraordinary test of the power of polarization in the United States. And it's, an, and it's astonishing, as you've conveyed to us, I think, that polarization has won in this, in this contest with a pandemic the likes of which we haven't seen in a, in 100 years. I'm just observing with renewed astonishment at that at the outcome of that collision. Yeah, it's it's really a jaw dropper, uh, Jonathan. And, you know, of course, as the fall moves forward, at least some of the models are suggesting that uh, deaths will actually start to increase at a higher rate. Um, uh, you know, that there may be as many as 100,000 um, more deaths between now and uh, Election Day. And people seem to think, well, that could make a difference. And my response is, really? Um, you know, what's made a difference, you know, really up until now. Now, if people did become more fearful, if specifically Republicans became more fearful, it would. But what we're seeing here is, is that in the fight between, you know, reality and uh, our partisanship and, and the messaging coming from uh, one specific political party right now, that the messaging is winning um, and it's winning by a landslide. Um, you know, in, in this particular uh, moment. I mean, you know, one of the things that uh, I answered a, a, a thing for Ezra Klein on Vox.com, you know, who I think is a terrific journalist. And, you know, he, you know, pointed up uh, all of these different things that had happened. Uh, and, and now we're thinking about the political ramifications of all of this. All of the things that had happened between April of last year and this year, you know, the stock market had reached uh, a high point, 150,000 people when Ezra uh, interviewed me and died and, you know, go on and on and on. And the president's approval rating has not moved a inch. Um, you know, it, it's as though nothing has happened. I mean, you know, the, the, the trend is a flat line. Mark, let's just add to that an impeachment. Impeachment, um, you know, would be another piece of that. You know, add all of those different elements, both positive and negative. Um, because there was a lot of good economic news and, you know, so forth as well. But it doesn't move anybody's opinion at this point. You know, reality is not intervening on our world, our, our view of, of, uh, of the president and, and the two major parties. Well, it, I, I'm, 
both repeating and stealing your line, but it is a troubling state of affairs when you find yourself hoping for more fear uh, out there. Yeah, it's, it's really true. Um, uh, you know, and I can't think of really anything else that would short circuit things. You know, when we look forward, you know, will this ever change? Will we ever, you know, get out of this? And I think the answer to that is it's going to be really hard because, you know, we have been essentially tied between Republicans and Democrats since 1994 at the congressional level and 2000 at the presidential level. You know, either side can win the next election. It's not like it was in the 70s or the 80s. So there's no incentive for the two sides to cooperate um, as a result. Um, and all of this is to say that um, how do you break the cycle? I don't know, because why would anybody stop doing what they're doing? Because they know that if they keep doing what they're doing, it's going to be at least a tie or close to a tie. You know, it would be a real risk for Republicans or Democrats to start to do something different. Um, maybe they do better, but maybe they do worse. So I think we're just, as long as nobody gets just absolutely crushed in a series of elections, it can't just be one, we're going to be stuck with this for the foreseeable future. Mark, thanks so much for joining us today. Again, this was not uplifting, but incredibly enlightening. And, and also just congratulations sincerely on this fantastic work you've been doing with the PSAs, with the work on race and masking. It's, as you said, it, this is making a real contribution to the wider world. So it's really great to hear about that. Thank you guys so much. Um, it's been, as I said, you know, the headiest and most exciting, you know, part of my career. And I'm sure that there won't be one that's more so. This has been another episode of COVID Conversations. We want to thank Klaus Meyer, our great producer, Rudy Colorado Mansfeld, Senior Associate Dean for Social Sciences and Global in the College of Arts and Sciences for conceiving of this series. And this series, COVID Conversations, is now part of a linked group of classes, COVID Investigations. And we also want to thank Kristen Chavez in the communications office in the College of Arts and Sciences for all her great work publicizing the podcast and also for making a transcript of the podcast available at our website for those who prefer to consume the podcast that way. And until next time, take care.